Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Well, good morning and welcome to all of you and welcome to those joining us on KFUO uh, locally by radio and anybody listening around the world. It's great to be with you this morning. My name is Paul McCain and I am a pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod and I serve at our church's publishing house on South Jefferson, Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. We have everything you need, and if we don't have it, you don't need it. <laughs> I've been asked today to cover the scripture lessons assigned for the coming Sunday, Sunday, October 21st, 2018. And for those listening at home, the scriptures we will briefly survey this morning include Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 20, Hebrews 4, 1 to 16, and Mark 10, 23 through 31. We begin with prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body, my soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Ecclesiastes 5, 10-20 He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, for the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. <clears throat> So you see a theme here in the readings for next week, and it's been kind of a theme you've been hearing about. Uh, last Sunday, you heard about the rich, rich young ruler in the gospel lesson. This Old Testament is a companion to the gospel reading in which Jesus goes even further and says even harder things about money and wealth and the things God has given us and how much they control how we live and how we think and how, frankly, they can also interfere very deeply in our relationship with Jesus Christ and cloud our vision of him and our duties as his people. So in this lesson, the preacher, and we're pretty sure it's uh, King David, uh, King Solomon, excuse me, say some pretty generally accepted truths. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with, with his income. Well, we say that, but in our society and culture, do you think that's true? Do you really think that's true? He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. We know the end of those who become consumed with money, but how tempting it is when we have money to want more and more and more and never be satisfied with what God gives us. He who loves money, and the word love is key here, he who loves money, what did God say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. He who loves wealth will never be satisfied with his income. And the preacher here, King Solomon, uses one of his favorite words, vanity, which is kind of an odd word. Um, we were talking about it at work last week. What does it mean, vanity? 
Things that pass away, things that make no difference, surface things, surface things. Elsewhere he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. What you have is going to be taken away. What advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And then verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. I won't put anybody on the spot here, but um, if you've had a job that involves heavy labor all day long, you know how sweet that labor, uh, that, that sleep is at night, don't you? And you are tired. It's almost as if God designed us to work hard and to sleep well. Isn't that true? During high school, I worked for several summers on a uh, surveying crew in Florida in the summertime. And uh, I learned very quickly what it means to pace yourself when you work. Because I was all eager to get out there, and part of our job, my job, is uh, I was called the tail chain. I was like, <laughs> I was so unskilled, my job was simply to hold the measuring tape at the end of the tape still while everybody else did their job. And I learned a few skills. If I had to go back to surveying today, I'd be lost because everything's gone digital and electronic. But that was hard work all day, and I was exhausted, and I slept so well. And you don't know that is. Sometimes when we <clears throat> get older, we have white-collar jobs or desk jobs or office jobs. We may not get the kind of physical activity we need to sleep. But God knew what he was doing. <clears throat> Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt, verse 13. Boy, we see that happening a lot. And as I go through these things, I'm not to uh, embarrass you or to make you feel bad, but I'm going to challenge you to think how these things apply to you. Challenge yourself. Challenge yourself. Where does God's word confront you on your attitude about wealth and riches? Riches lost in a bad venture. How many times have we seen somebody who has a good bit of wealth throw it all away in a ridiculous, foolish investment scheme because they think... Wow, now I'm really going to hit it big. It's like the person who can't stop him or herself from going back to the gaming table. The addiction to gambling is real, and it's completely in your head. But it's a real addiction. I just And what drives it? I've got to win. Maybe this time I'll hit it big. If someone wants me to ask about state-sponsored gambling, feel free. Anybody want to ask me about that? I'm totally opposed to it, totally opposed to it. It's the government and the state doing evil in the guise of claiming to do good. I, and it, we know for a fact it victimizes the poorest members of our society who are the most desperate to get out of their condition. I think it's a great evil. So I'm against it. Let's go to verse 17. All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. That's a pretty sad description of a person who's really lost and drowning in his obsession with wealth. For that matter, obsession with anything that goes against God's will. In verse 18, behold, and now the preacher kind of gives us some good news. His observation, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So we have to be careful when we talk about what the Bible teaches about money, that we not give people the impression that the Bible is saying, money is evil. What does it say? It's not the money that's the evil, it's the love of money which is the root of all kinds of evil. But here, the preacher, Solomon, here's what I've seen to be good. Eat, drink, enjoy the work God has given you. God wants us to enjoy these things. Everyone also, verse 19, to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. So that's an interesting thing. Let's just not go too quickly over this. <clears throat> God does give wealth and possessions and power. According to his good and gracious will, it's not all the same. We're not a bunch of communists. We don't say, you know, 
from each according to his ability to each according to his need. No, God gives all these things, and it's, it's okay to be wealthy. And it's funny always when we talk about this to an American audience, congregation, compared to our brothers and sisters in Christ who live in <clears throat> absolute abject poverty in so many places in the world, you are all fabulously wealthy beyond what they could ever imagine. Anybody who's got two suits of clothing is wealthier than the vast majority of people around the world. And I'll talk about, our again, our own brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Lutherans, who I've come to know across various continents. I mean, it just it blows their mind. And they're very wise about it, too. Now, is being poor best for being a Christian? No, that's not what the point here is. But let's not allow ourselves off the hook today with any of these texts by thinking, well, I'm not rich. Yes, you are. Okay, <laughs> let's just get that off the table. You may not think you are. Your bank account may indicate you're not. But compared to, again, the majority of the world's populations, Americans are fabulously wealthy. No other nation or culture in the history of the world has been as wealthy as the United States of America and other industrialized Western nations. So let's just dispel ourselves of any mythology. None of this applies to me because I'm not rich. It all applies to everyone all the time. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and powers and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Wow, does that draw us up short? Okay, let's just listen to those comments again. To accept his lot, perhaps another way of saying it is to accept his vocation in life from God. And it doesn't say accept his toil. It doesn't say endure his toil. It doesn't say put up with his toil begrudgingly. No, it says rejoice in your work. Rejoice in the duties God has given you. This is the gift of God. As you probably know, we Lutherans are very blessed with a very clear understanding that Martin Luther worked his way through during the darkness of the Reformation, what the Roman Catholic Church at the time was teaching, that all of you people out there, how many church workers are here in the audience this morning? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm not saying this to you. All of you non-church work people, you lay people, <clears throat> your duty is to support me, the priest, or anybody in a monastic order or a nunnery, because on your behalf, I will do good works. Your lot in life is to just toil and go about your little mundane secular duties while I have the sacred duties. I'm up here, the Pope's way up here, and you guys are like down here supporting me. You, you pay, I pray, okay? That was the attitude, basically. If you really want to be a good Christian, you join a religious order. But here, the Bible affirming this keen insight that God gives us all vocations to serve for his good purposes. What does it say? Rejoice in your work. This is the gift of God. Now, maybe you think this sounds a little negative, but it's a true statement. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied. This is an interesting thought. Occupied with the drudgery of work. Occupied with all your worries in life. Occupied with all your distractions. Occupied with joy in his heart. Beautiful. And that's the Old Testament reading. I'll pause here for questions. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Right. Uh, for our listening audience, the comment was, um, our sister in Christ here said, when I read that verse, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Substitute the word power will not be satisfied with power. Boy, isn't that the truth. We see that throughout history. You never have enough money. You never have enough power. Power breeds a thirst and lust for power. And the 20th century was the most dramatic example of that with the great figures, the great dictators. And there was this hunger for power, hunger for power. Absolutely correct. 
Comments, questions? Did you have a bill? Did you have a question? No? Okay. It's like an auction when you're up here. You gotta look for the little, are they bidding or are they just scratching their ear? What, is it a question? No. Moving on. I'm sure pastors told you this, but in the lectionary system, this three-year lectionary system, the Old and the the Old Testament readings and the Gospel readings kind of are designed to go together, and particularly during the Pentecost season, the Epistle readings are continuous readings through various books of the Bible. Uh, I think we had First uh, John earlier this year, and now we have all these readings from Hebrews. So the purpose of the three-year lectionary is to put in front of people listening as much of the Bible as possible in the hope that this will increase biblical literacy. So with that in mind, we'll just kind of little, take a little pause here from our theme of wealth and money and now pick up in Hebrews, which is a fantastic book of the Bible. And the best commentary on the book of Hebrews, this is not an advertisement for CPH. Because if it is, then I'd have to pay KFUO or something. So this is not an advertising. But if you want to buy the best commentary on the book of Hebrews, it's by John Kleinig, an Australian Lutheran theologian. It's fantastic. And the fascinating thing that Dr. Kleinig has done is he wrote a commentary on the book of Leviticus, which is what Hebrew mentions all the time, and the book of Hebrews. I'm not sure if this has ever been done in depth like this before, but they're a beautiful combination. But Dr. Kleinig has such a beautiful perspective on these, on these uh, texts from the Bible. So if you're looking for a really in-depth study of Hebrews, there you go. Now, also I should say, at this point in the church year, we are moving closer and closer towards the last Sunday in the church year, which is going to expose us to a lot of readings about the end times. And I have to admit, I still haven't gotten over my frustration a bit with the, with the three-year lectionary because it seems like they just Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, they bombard us with these what's called eschatological texts, the end times texts, just over and over and over again. Well, they're getting us ready to see Jesus when he comes again. So I need to change my attitude. But I'll tell you what, as a preacher, it gets pretty tough when you have to preach on the same idea like five or six different times. It's, it's tough. It's a challenge. Oh, by the way, I found Pastor's sermon on the altar here. If anybody's staying, I could just read it and you don't have to go to church. No, that's horrible. I did not say that. <laughs> Hebrews 4, 1 to 16. Some dire warnings here. Hebrews 4, 4. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, hearkening back to the Old Testament people of God, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed enter that rest. What rest? This great Sabbath rest theology in Hebrews. There is for the people of God a Sabbath rest. It's hearkening back to the six days of creation, right? And on the sixth day, he rested. Sixth day, he rested. Seventh day. Then in the New Testament and in the early church, they developed this beautiful theology of the eighth day, this eternal day which comes. It's a very interesting uh, subject. We who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4. For he has, interesting how they quote scripture, somewhere it says, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It's right from Genesis. But God warns, they shall not enter my rest. So here is the, here is the stern warning for us. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That is a powerful message for us to hear right now. It's interesting, the Bible always talks about history, history, history. 
but it always brings us to the right here and now. Today is the day of salvation. And don't say to yourself, I've been saved. Yeah, I believe that. I took my confirmation vows. I'm good. No, the Word of God is at work on you, and we'll hear about it here in this reading, is at work on you to continually stir up in you trust and faith in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do not harden your hearts. The greatest danger in the church is becoming too used to everything, becoming bored with things. The, one of the great sins identified in the medieval church was satiety. Just getting so fat and happy with everything, you're like the people in the wandering around saying, we are so sick and tired of this manna. We want something else. God giving them everything they need, taking care of them, protecting them, saving them, feeding them. We're sick of that stuff. We are sick of it. We want new, new, new. If Joshua, verse 8, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And here's this beautiful passage, verse 9 from Hebrews 4. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this brilliant observation, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. God has done it all for you in terms of your salvation. Be at peace. Rest. Jesus says, fear not. Don't worry. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Peace be with you. Over and over and over, God is saying this to us. He's basically programming our brains, which carry with them until their death, the power of the fall into sin. And we're always going to be tempted to want more, back to our theme of money, to not be satisfied, to be worried, to be afraid. Those are all very real feelings. And people listening right now at home are thinking, yeah, but what about my cancer diagnosis? What about what the doctor just told you during the last visit? What about that low bank account? Oh, the devil can just feed on these things in our minds. Therefore, strive to enter that rest. It's a battle so that no one may fall, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And here comes another very famous uh, passage from Scripture, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrows, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a reference to the Roman short sword, the gladius, that the Romans carried, the very distinctive sword, and it had razor-sharp double, double edges. Many un understand this to be a way to talk about the proper distinction between law and gospel. Okay? But God's word is living and active. Now you say, what word is this? It's the word we have inscripturated in the Bible, Okay, that's the touchstone. That's the one authoritative revelation of God that we know to be inspired and inerrant and infallible. And I always like to mention this. We had a big hullabaloo in our church body over these issues uh, during the Seminex crisis, which was an extremely important crisis in our church, and the resolution what was a blessing. But the buzzword, the word that got everybody upset was the word inerrant. Inerrancy of the Bible. Oh, you're saying it doesn't make any errors. Yeah, that's what, we, that's what the Bible teaches about itself. But the stronger word is infallible. Infallible means it's incapable of error. Incapable. comes from two Latin words, which means incapable of making a mistake, infallible. So that's the strongest word. Inerrancy does not err. Luther says in his large catechism, God's word neither errs nor deceives. In other words, God will not mislead you through his word. This word of God is the Holy Spirit wields it. In other words, it's not just a book, okay? The, the, you can have Bibles all over your house, as many of us do, but if we never open them, we never read them, it's not a magic talisman in the house. But the Holy Spirit works through the Word, specifically the Word of the Gospel, 
to create new life, to create faith, to sustain it, to support it, to help you grow. And now, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I can't help but think of the Garden of Eden when God says, who told you you were naked? Interesting, fascinating account there. So we are all naked before God. We're exposed to his eyes and to him we must give account. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's a very important thought, and it's been a source of some controversy. Well, how could Jesus really be a human being if he, if, if he couldn't sin? Now, if we say that, if we think that, think with me for a moment, then what you are saying is God created sin. Because if to sin is the very essence of what it is to be a human being, then who creates that? God. So you're making God the author of sin. No. The doctrine of the two natures in Christ teaches that the divine Son of God assumed into himself the person, the, the human nature, and it's a God-man combination, sort of. And there's a huge, a lot of theology around this called Christology. But all of it is to comfort us. But we do know that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. There's, that's what we should focus on. Not getting all hung about, oh, what do you mean he was without sin? No, the more important point is he was tempted, and unlike you, he didn't give in. And none of us here can say, I've never given in when tempted. Not only Jesus. Therefore, he knows what it is to be tempted. He overcomes a temptation in your place, on your behalf, like the hymn in the month, Mighty Fortress. He's by our side, upon the plain, with his good gifts and spirit. Okay? One of my favorite hymns. I, I want to jump up when we sing it every time at church, but I don't want anybody to think I'm going weird or anything. Any comments on Hebrews 4? Hebrews is a rich book of the Bible. Any comments or questions on this reading from Hebrews 4? And the sermon today is on Hebrews 3, 12 to 19 in the gym service. What was that symbol? Oh, I'm putting her on the spot. Sorry. What? Oh, you, she's waving. It's okay. You can wave. No questions or comments on any of this? Nothing? Anybody? Bueller? Okay, we'll keep going. All right. So we come to the meat and potatoes, really. The gospel lesson, ideally, is what we preach on using the other texts. But these are the words of Jesus. Mark 10, 23-31. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, Oh, by the way, is this anybody's favorite passage from the New Testament? Do you ever hear any of this for confirmation verses? Wouldn't that be something? Pastor lays his hand and says, Children, how difficult it is for you to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to enter the kingdom of God. Amen. No. Tough words from Jesus. Tough words from Jesus. And particularly in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is the one that just breathlessly runs from event to event. And one of Mark's favorite words, pastors probably told you, is the Greek word oithes, which means and immediately. And immediately. And then it happened. And a colleague at work that I work with, Rob Rebow, very, very gifted uh, pastor, he had an interesting way of thinking about this. We know Mark was Peter's basically disciple, or right with Peter. Mark is recording 
Peter's version of the gospel. And when you think about that, suddenly, who are we hearing with this breathless, eager, over-the-top, bizarre statements we find sometimes in Mark? It would be Peter. Who else would use the word immediately all the time? The guy who jumped out of the boat to see Jesus when he saw him walking across the water, almost drowned. And then it happens again, post-resurrection appearance. Who is the guy that jumps out of the boat, almost fully clothed, and runs, and just swims his way to, it's Peter. Peter's spontaneous, he's excitable. So it makes sense that Peter would be the one to have this breathless energy about his telling of the gospel. And Peter does not leave this story out. Now, last Sunday you talked about that rich young ruler who went away sad when he asked Jesus the question, Teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus understood and saw his heart, where his heart was, where your heart is and where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. He saw that in this rich young man. So these words come right after this incident. Probably should be a unit. But after the young man walked away dejected, Jesus looked around, and did he, did he say something easier? Did he comfort them? Did he try to say, oh, but don't worry, you guys, you're okay. How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, what did I just tell all of, all of us? We're all wealthy. And the disciples knew they had money too. St. Peter had a, had a home, had a wife, had a mother-in-law. The disciples were amazed at his words. We hear that a lot. They marveled at his words. They were stunned by his words. They didn't understand his words. Teacher, what did you really mean? Here's another example. Now, does Jesus finally let them off the hook? Oh, here's what I mean. No, he, he pushes the point. Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then comes verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> and they were exceedingly astonished. And said, well, then who can be saved? Now, I've heard preachers, and I, I admit I did this myself for oh, too many years, and I care to remember. Uh, we try to get out of this by saying, well, uh, you see, this saying is really referring to a little tiny gate in the wall of Jerusalem that a camel, if they got down on their knees, could crawl through. So, in other words... Oh, don't worry, it may be hard, but it's possible. The camel can get through the, the eye of the needle gate. That's been pretty much debunked. There's real no substantiation for this. So if there was, if that were the case, why would the disciples' reactions have been amazement? And further, when Jesus said what he said, exceedingly astonished. Wouldn't they have all said, well, you know... Sure, it's tough, Jesus, but the camel can get through the eye of the gate. So let's just set that aside and make these words as hard as they actually are on us this morning. Does anybody get nervous when, when you hear this? Anybody? I think we should. I think it should come as a strong, strong warning to us. But what do we do with this? Do we run out and sell everything we have? Jesus doesn't command that. If it's getting in the way of your salvation, you should. God gives us all good gifts, but everything must be kept in perspective. They were exceedingly astonished and said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, here's the point, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So there's this radical separation at this point between any scheming or planning or plotting and hoping we human beings can do, thinking, this is a way I can make sure I'm going to be in heaven. 
Jesus is confronting people here with one of the huge barriers in the Christian life, a love of money and a trust in possessions. It's a hard saying, but with God, all things are possible. With God, you will be led to repent of your obsession with wealth and gifts. And then uh, verse 29 and following, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, well, uh, Peter kind of protests and says, Hey, Jesus, we've given everything up. And Jesus said, That's good. That's good. You will receive a reward in heaven. And that is true, but that's not really the point of this text. What have you heard about this text as you've had it explained to you during your life? What things have you heard? Not supposed to have dead air on the radio, so somebody speak up. Nobody's ever heard about this. This is the first time you ever heard this gospel reading? Really? Come on. What have you heard about this text? D, what have you heard? Anybody? You know, nobody on the radio can actually hear you when you talk. They just hear me, so you don't have to be afraid. You know, I've heard a lot of people racing to let everybody off the hook when these texts are read. You know, I thought Pastor uh, Thompson did a wonderful job the other week with that other hard text about divorce. I thought that was a wonderfully done sermon. In other words, we don't have to race to figure out how we can get out from under the burden of some of Jesus' hard words. No, we should let them work their way in us. Because what does the Hebrews text say? God's word is living and active. Looks like you're bursting to say something. No? (laughs) You are such a quiet crowd. So what is the proper attitude towards wealth? God gives it all to us. We think of the uh, first article of the Apostles' Creed. God has given me all that I need to sustain this body and life. All the stuff I need. Everything. So God gives us these gifts. He wants us to use these gifts. He doesn't want us to become obsessed by the gifts. He doesn't want us to make wealth our idol or goal in life. On the other hand... We can use these gifts in an amazing way. Steve. Exactly. Uh, Steve just said he has heard the eye of the needle theory that it actually was a gate, that it was possible for the camel to get through. But that is kind of our human desire to kind of just don't have that door slam so shut in our face. There's just a little room for us to do our part, and then God's going to reward us. Okay? So take take that idea off the table. That's a dangerous thought. Because what are we always going to think about? what I can do. We are hopeless, helpless without God's help. It is difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Is it better to be poor? Does being poor automatically make you a better Christian? The the medieval church taught this by putting monks and nuns in monasteries and nunneries where they had to take a vow of poverty and they were viewed as living a higher life. Listen, Satan will use everything in his playbook to get you to take your eyes off Jesus. I was thinking driving in here today, um, and I've often thought about this. I'm not a parish pastor, but I, I have a hard time with this hypothetical situation. What if somebody plays the lottery and wins, you know, some of these giant sums now, like half a billion dollars? What if they played the lottery and then came to you as a parish pastor and said, Pastor, I want to give 10% of my $500 million to the church. What what would you do? What would you do? 
<laughs> okay, okay. Uh, the lady said, I would hope the church would accept it. Any opposite view? You know, this is really a case where sometimes we want to lay down black and whites, but wouldn't it really have a lot to do with the person and the motivations? If the person came to the church and said, I want to give this money, and you got the impression very clearly and sensed immediately, the reason they want to give this money is they think if they do, they will be like that camel trying to wriggle through the eye of the needle. Then we would have to say, no, no thank you. Now, if one of you good, wonderful, faithful Christians with all the right motivations and gospel-centered beliefs said to me, I want to give the church $50 million, then we would say, okay, you're going to challenge me? Well, that's the other thing. Is it, would it be an ill-gotten gain? Um, we wouldn't accept an a, a offering from a guy who was just convicted of robbing a bank. We'd probably get in trouble for taking the money. Um, yeah, I, I really struggle with this stuff. I really, I mean, maybe I shouldn't, but I do. I, I just, I've, I've wondered this many times. But it's kind of, it's not, not, I don't want to use the word fun. It's, it's good to challenge ourselves to help ourselves sort through these things. There you go. The comment was, aren't we all sinful? Can we all in good conscience say that every time we get paid and give a gift to the church, that our, we've received this money with a completely 100% perfect attitude and, and we're all giving it joyfully to the church. I love it when the church makes us a deduction from my bank account. Well, I think we do. I think many of us do. And that's great. We should. God loves a cheerful giver. Therefore, if I'm not cheerful, I'm not going to give, right? No. <laughs> we can find all kinds of excuses. But this is the kind of struggle we need to go through with when we really sort through our money and finances in light of our life in Jesus Christ. I never had to, I never, I, I was in the parish for a relatively brief time at a very small rural congregation where all my members, all my dairy farmers, they were all millionaires on paper. You added up the value of their land and their four, three, four hundred thousand dollar humongous combines and these huge tractors and all, they were all millionaires on paper, okay? <clears throat> on paper. But the point was, I never had to do a stewardship campaign. I never had to preach about giving and supporting the church. One of the first Sundays I was there, one of my, my church presidents said, Pastor, here's the way it works around here. If you need something, you ask for it. And I got to put them to the test. Our uh, air conditioning system broke in the church, which some members still thought was kind of a kind of an innovation and unnecessary. But it, it gets hot in the summertime. Well, I told them the next week, you know, $15,000 was there, boom. But I, I, I don't envy pastors in large, affluent congregations like this. I don't. Um, Lynn and I went to a large congregation, I won't say where, but I got so tired while I was, I went there during the seminary and um, stayed there an extra, stayed for two extra years. So we were there a long time, and I got so sick and tired of this congregation, it seemed like every time you turn around, it's about money. It's about asking for money. It's about telling me I got to give a gift. I mean, so it, it's a real challenge. How does this text help us sort through this kind of thing? Are we amazed at Jesus' words? Yes. Does he make it easier for us? No. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished. Well, then, Jesus, who can be saved? Now, why would they say that if all of them didn't themselves have wealth and have some money? And they did. There's a lot of mythology about the early church as apostles. And, you know, again, Peter had a fishing business. He had a house. He had a home. A tax collector, unless he just gave it all away, Matthew. 
They knew they all were blessed by God with physical possessions. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. So in other words, if you think you can have it both ways, you can lust after money, you can be greedy, you can be possessed by it, your goal in life is making money over and over. If that's where you're at, that's like trying to get yourself into the kingdom of God as the camel tries to wriggle through the eye of a needle. Why? Because it will distract, it will tempt, it will ultimately destroy your soul. That's a tough, hard message to preach in the affluent culture and society in which we live. But it's important for us all to hear, very important for us all to hear. So are you going to leave today and say, Pastor McCain, you're going to run and tell on me and say, Pastor McCain told us, Pastor Thomas, that we can't have any money, that it's wrong to have money. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Why? Because throughout the scriptures, God is the giver of all the gifts. What does the Old Testament lesson say again? It is good to have joy in the vocation God has given us. Rejoice in your toil. Ecclesiastes 5.19. That's, that's a reference not simply to the physical labor, but to the calling you have in life. It's a gift of God. And isn't that the point? Look what I've achieved. Look what my hands have brought into my life. That foolish rich man, Jesus tells the parable. You know, Jesus talks a lot about money. Two things people say, like to avoid in the New Testament, in the words of Jesus, as, uh, the words of Jesus. All the things he says about hell, he talks about hell a lot. And money, he talks about money a lot. But he tells that great parable. And I remember the old uh, arch book, the little CPH arch book on the rich fool, the old style illustrations. I remember as a little child, um, seeing this little chubby rich man laying in his bed after he had just built all these big silos. Now I'm content. Now I've got it made. That night, Jesus says, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Okay? It's an attitude. It's a perspective. Jesus comes into our lives and he changes everything. By the way, I'm going to just pause and say, when exactly do we break away from KFUO? Hello? Someone get her attention. I'll take your... Yeah, what time do we break away from KFUO? What? Okay, thank you. 1030. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, yeah, I haven't really talked. You can take the sound down a little bit. Uh, verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters, with persecutions in the age to come. That, uh, that's a real tricky passage, isn't it? It's making it sound as if... If we do, and this was a key proof text for monasticism during the Middle Ages, by the way. In other words, if you give all these things up, you're going to receive so much more now in this time. The way I would understand that to be a hundredfold of things even better than can be imagined simply through all these relationships or children's or lands. That's about the best I can do right now. Um, but the point is, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's another interesting concept, that there are degrees of reward in heaven. We're always careful not to make too much of that, because what's our first instinct? To... What's that? Okay, yeah, so if you're in heaven, you're in heaven. But also then we start to play the game, well, I'm going to be, and then we begin to sound just like the apostles argued about who's going to be greatest. Remember? What's that? You're, you just want to get in. Well, that's, that's the key focus. But there is, I'm sorry, you had a question? No, just a comment. Yeah. This sounds like what Luther did. Yeah. Yeah, the... Uh, Sister in Christ said, this sounds what, uh, like what Luther did. 
Yeah, well, Luther struggled. Uh, he had a very keen conscience. He despaired of his sin, and the church at the time taught him that there was a way for him to purge himself from his sins. And the way, you could really be sure, was giving up every physical possession. They took this text, text like this, and they taught, if you give everything up, you've really done super works. The theology was a, a work of super erogation. Literally means super works. Yeah, works. Remember, you lay people are down here doing your little things. But then you got better works. Then you got super works. We're the super workers. But here, too, Jesus is assuring us that what is given up for the gospel is never really lost. Now, to what extent we can use this to motivate ourselves to sacrifice for the gospel, it's possible, but it's, it can be also a little dangerous. But Jesus is trying to a little bit calm his apostles down who are basically freaking out at this moment. Hard statements of Jesus. There's more context to this text as well, but that'll be uh, for, for next Sunday. So I don't know, Don. I don't think I've given you a very good answer, but those are... Some of the thoughts. Yeah, it is. With persecutions. Well, we know Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. Right? So, I want to say this guardedly. But I would be very concerned about a Christian or a church that kind of just breezed through life without a single moment or opportunity to experience some kind of persecution for the faith. I, that would cause me pause. Um, I'm not saying, you know, unless you're being beat up every day, you're not, <laughs> you've got to go out of your way to be persecuted. <laughs> no, I'm not saying that. Um, but the very fact that you live as lights in this godless generation will cause you to receive Sometimes unwanted attention, all right, and hostility. I guess we go back to verse 11 in the Hebrews uh, reading. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Is it possible to fall away from the faith? Absolutely, yes. Unlike the Calvinists, we Lutherans do not teach once saved, always saved. That is a very dangerous teaching. It's meant to comfort people, but it can be very dangerous and misleading people into thinking that once I'm saved, it really doesn't matter what I do because I'm in like Flint. That's a dangerous teaching. Thoughts and comments on these three texts? Anybody? She said, if I... Give everything I have away and become poor. Have I earned my way into heaven? And of course, the answer today is absolutely yes. No, absolutely no. Poor people can become very boastful and prideful about their poverty. Okay? I, I, I immediately think when you say that, I immediately think of the widow giving the... Is the point of that passage that you should give away the last pennies you have, or rather pointing us to her trust, her faith, her confidence in God's provision for her, and pointing us to, to her as an example of her enormous love for her saving God. Obviously, it's the latter, not the former. Beautiful, beautiful examples. You know, and let, lest anybody walk out of here and feel like, well, gosh, I'm rich. I have to feel double guilty. Can you, I mean, I wish I could experience the joy of having so much money, I could give so much more to the church. You know, back to my silly, stupid mind game I like to play about the lottery. You know, sometimes I think, oh, if I play the lottery, my father-in-law, God rest his soul, um, he always cracked. Do you remember that my wife's here, Lynn? Do you remember your, where's Lynn? Your dad saying this once to me? <laughs> well, if God wants me to win the lottery, 
how can I if I don't buy a ticket? And I was like, but I mean, he was halfway serious. He didn't, he didn't gamble and play the lottery. He just said that once and it made me laugh. Um, but if you were given the opportunity to support the work of the church in a way much greater than you can now, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And think of all the wealthy people that are mentioned in the Bible who came to the aid of the church. The, wo the, wim the woman, uh, some of the women Paul would visit down by the river on his missionary journeys, they hosted the church in their homes. There were very wealthy early Christians. They did wonderful things for the Lord. So please don't leave today, or anybody listening, don't leave with the impression of wealth is bad, money's bad. Again, we go back to the text of the scriptures that says, the love of money, where is your, where's your heart? That's the point of this text. Where is your heart? Is it with your treasure? Is it with the Lord? Where your heart is, is where your treasure is. Luther's uh, deep explanations of the uh, first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, you shall have no other gods before me, the first commandment. It really comes down to what in your life has been set up in the place of God. We say this, but we do this. Wealth is a wonderful blessing from the Lord. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth, but it's when it gets in the way of our relationship with God and with each other. That's the other thing we haven't really talked much about here, though. Have you, are you, I mean, <clears throat> this is an uncomfortable question. I'll just ask it kind of rhetorically. I'll let you answer it in your head. How many times have we seen <sighs> families torn apart at the death of a loved one over the estate or over money or hurt feelings, bitterness, anger, jealousy? Why'd they get more than me? Why didn't, why this, why that? If you don't have a living trust, if you don't have a trust, by the way, get one, go to a lawyer. Don't subject your family to going through probate. That's a totally non-biblical advice, but any lawyers in the house? Any lawyers in the room? Anybody? Any estate lawyers? Anybody in fundraising? Dwayne, you'd agree with me, wouldn't you? As a, yeah. Get a trust, okay. I saw a hand, Lisa. Yeah. Right. Lisa just said it really comes down to an idol. We all like to think, well, uh, I don't have to worry about sinning against idols because I have no idols in my house. No, we have lots of idols, potential, I should say, potential idols in our life. How about that TV show? <laughs> American Idol. I mean, it's such a crass demonstration. of the, One of the more honest TV show titles ever created. Isn't it? It's wonderful. That's exactly what we're talking about, fame and celebrity. But it's, it's where our heart is. Yes, it's difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. We can, we can be thankful that Jesus loves us enough and loved us enough to give us these hard sayings to warn us, or else we would just go kind of merrily on our way, uh, never worrying too much about things. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up at this point. It is 1029 by my clock. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Almighty and gracious God, thank you for all your good gifts. Keep us faithful and steadfast to the end. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.